So I want to start off this morning by asking you if you've ever had a stain that you can't wash clean from an item. Uh, early in his marriage, a pastor, who is not me, uh, sold his Volkswagen in order to buy uh, their first really nice piece of furniture for their home, a pink sofa. And I believe that that picture of that is uh, something like that is on the screen for you now. Now, the store told him and his wife how to take care of this. And so when they come home, the number one day rule that they had for their very small children is don't sit on it. Don't even play near it. Don't breathe on it. Don't even think about it. And so for every other chair in this house, you may freely sit, but on the sofa, you may not. For on that day, you will surely die. <laughs> then came the fall, the appearance of a stain, red jam on the couch. So the wife assembles their three children. Again, this is not my family, okay? Another pastor's family. And as the wife assembled these three kids, she said to them, children, do you see this stain? I spoke to the man at the store and he said that this is something that will not come out for all eternity. You know how long eternity is, kids? It's how long you're gonna sit here till one of you tells me which one of you put this stain on the couch. And so there was dead silence for a very long time. And the pastor reports, I knew that none of them would confess because A, they'd never seen their mom so mad in their lives before. B, they were fearful that they would spend all of eternity in timeout. And C, because I was the one who put the stain on the couch, the pastor reports. Now the truth is that we all stain the sofa. We call it sin. And I wonder if you've ever thought about how sinful we really are, because most of us think, you know what, I'm a pretty good person, but if you were to count just how often and how much we sin in just one day, if you were to really keep track, I think that you would actually be horrified. We experience sin and it takes away our joy, our peace, our integrity, our self-control, and our ability to love others genuinely. And I think many of you know exactly what I'm talking about right now. We try to make excuses for ourselves. Well, I'm only human. Everyone makes mistakes. Or we try to just ignore it, sweep it under the rug, just forget about it. But the problem is that God made you and I to live in relationship with him, in obedience to his good ways. But you and I, we chose through Adam, our first father, and through our own desires and actions to say no to God. I won't trust you or follow you. I want to do things my way instead of yours. That is sin. And it's an irremovable stain on our souls. And so... The question is, how can you and I possibly draw near to God when our stain excludes us from his intimacy and from his presence? Turn in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 10. We're in this series called Anchored, where we're discovering as turbulence in life causes us to drift from our faith, that Jesus is an anchor of hope for our souls. That for the Hebrew Christians back then, and for us today, that this letter is a call for us to hang on to Jesus because he is far greater than all the other people, pursuits, and possibilities in which we place our hope. And just to review, way back in chapters 8 and 9, we discovered that there's this new covenant, a new relationship between God and his people. 
and that it's not simply replacing an old set of rules with a new set, but instead it's a covenant relationship about how Jesus, as this great high priest, has come to us shedding his blood as an ultimate answer to our distance from God. Now, as we land in chapter 10 this morning, what's happening is that it kind of just summarizes all that's been discussed in chapters 8 and 9, but it also is going to give us some very practical wisdom that if sin is the problem, what is the solution? That if I want to draw near to God, and yet I feel distance from him because of sin in my life or even suffering circumstances in my life. How do we get there? How do we get to a place of closeness? And so the Old Testament, God taught his people that they cannot live with the stain of the blood stain of sin in their life. That the consequence is sin and death and that it must be paid for with life. And so as a gesture of payment for their sins, they were to sacrifice an animal as if its life, as if its blood might be a substitute for our own. And so you can imagine the people of the Old Testament breathe a sigh of relief. Okay, my sins are erased if something else's lifeblood gets shed instead of mine. But what we're discovering here is that God teaches us in uh, chapter 10, verses 1 through 18, that we cannot draw near to God by the Old Testament law and Old Testament sacrifices. That those things don't make people holy, that they don't cleanse us from sin because they are a shadow of the real thing. You can see on the verse that's pulled up on the screen that the real thing is the salvation that we receive in this new covenant through Jesus. And that those Old Testament, Old Covenant sacrifices simply serve as a yearly reminder that we're continuing to sin, that we're guilty before God. And yet they point forward to something better. And so I want you to think about it this way. If you were wearing a white t-shirt this morning, and you had a permanent stain on it, something that you washed in the laundry again and again, and you cannot get that, that, that big food stain or coffee stain out, out of your shirt. So when you see your shirt, all it does, the only thing it does is serves as a reminder. It reminds you, oh, look, I have a stain on my shirt. I stained my shirt. And so that's what's happening with the old covenant sacrifices, that they're just a symbol because no animal is worthy payment for your life. It's like trying to pay your mortgage with monopoly money. It's not the real thing. And so the question is, how do we draw close to God? How do we draw near to him? If nothing I give, nothing that I have can pay that debt of sin, can bridge that distance between us and God. Well, looking on further in the passage, when the son of God came into the world, he declares as the high priest, instead of offering just a symbol or a shadow, I am the offering. He offers his own body in death as a perfect payment for our sins and in his perfect obedience to his father, having come to do your will, O God, fulfilling this prophecy about this coming Messiah, this Savior King. And as a result, now here's the key in verses 1 through 18. The key is in verse 14. Will you look at it with me on the screen? For by this single offering, he, Jesus, has perfected for how long? For all time those who are being sanctified, that through Jesus's perfect payment of his obedience and his sacrificial death, that this is a once for all time deal. It's a done deal. And that through that, you and I are being sanctified. What that means is it's this, this ongoing process where we're being continuously cleansed from our sin, that, um, that we are growing in holiness, that we're growing into the likeness of Jesus through his work in us. And so the big idea for this passage this morning, this whole passage that we're going to look at, 
is that by Jesus's perfect once for all sacrifice of himself, that we can draw near to God by faith in him and in his cleansing work, work that he's done for us by shedding his blood at the cross. And so I wanna start off this morning with you thinking about how these Old Testament rituals were shadows of the real thing. They're only shadows of our reconciliation and being able to have a relation with God. And so when you and I, when we feel down about our world, about our lives, about our own flaws and feelings, what is your shadow religion? What I mean is, what are those things that you use to resolve your guilt and your pain, your loneliness or your emptiness, to take away your sin or to give you hope and a future in place of Jesus? For some of you, you may feel like, well, I'm not very religious. I don't believe in God, but you are actually the most religious of all. That Christian or not, many of us live as if through the shadows of our own efforts, ability, and morality, that I can try to cleanse myself, that I can try to be a good person, I can balance the scales, when apart from Jesus, we cannot. Now, we're kind of covering familiar ground as we've covered a lot of this in chapters eight and nine. So the question is, well, okay, I'm supposed to draw near to God through Jesus, but how do I do that when I'm in moments of distress or doubt or despair that are, instead of being able to draw near to God, it's pulling me away from God. Let's read with together in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up uh, to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So let's stop right there for a moment. In verses 19 and 20, it starts off with a therefore. So he's drawing this conclusion and application of everything that we've read in chapters eight through nine, all the way through verses one through 18. And so as whenever you see the word therefore, it's kind of a clue to us, pay attention. We're getting to the point. Here's the conclusion, here's the application. That because of Jesus's sacrifice of his own blood as the payment for our sins, that we have confidence to enter somewhere. Where is that place? Look at the scriptures. He's talking about the holy place, the this holy inner sanctuary in the temple of God where the presence of God would manifest and dwell amongst his people. And in this holy place, it was separated from the rest of the tabernacle tent by a heavy curtain. So we're told that we're able to enter this holy place through the curtain. So that tells us about Exodus chapter 26, that there was these layers of cloth. So when you think about going through a curtain, you think like, well, what's the big deal? But there were these multiple layers of cloth that were in fact about three feet thick. This thick curtain that separates the, the inner sanctuary, the most holy place from the holy place. And the way that these layers were designed is that they would overlap. It was like a, a big maze that 
you would have to walk through that. In fact, only the high priest could walk through and only once a year in order to enter into the presence of God to make sacrifices for the sins of the people. Why was it designed that way? To protect people. Because God's holiness and his majesty are so great that none may approach him without being cleansed. That it meant certain death if you entered the presence of God with the stain of sin on your soul. So this curtain represents our separation from the presence, the awesome presence of the living God. It is a separation by a curtain. And what this passage tells us, though, is that through Jesus, what was once closed to all is now open to us through this new and living way that Jesus is this new and living way as the one who rose from the dead and lives again so that by faith in him, he can raise us from the dead and give us life forever with him, a new and living way. And in verses 21 and 22, because Jesus is our high priest who opens this way with his sacrifice, there are three things that you and I can experience. And I want you to pay attention to them. The first is this, let us draw near to God. Now, you probably, I didn't read it for you, so you might not have missed it. But back in verse one, it described how people were unable to draw near to God by the symbols and shadows of sacrifice, that they were separated by this heavy curtain. But now that you and I are able to approach the throne of grace confidently that we can come close to this holy God because of Jesus's perfect sacrifice that cleanses, it says, our conscience and our body. All that means is our internal soul and our outward lives from sin. And so we can draw near to God. Secondly, verse 23, let us hold fast to this confession of our hope. That means that in the face of sin and suffering in our lives, that many times people feel hopeless, right? So when we face uh, overcoming overwhelming challenges of our own sin and suffering, you and I may feel self hopeless. But do you remember the theme of this whole book back in chapter 6, verse 19? That for the hopeless, Jesus is an anchor of hope for the soul. That means that when we face difficulty and despair, that this verse, verse 23, calls us, to hold fast to Jesus without wavering back and forth, that there's an anchor that we can hold on to so that we won't be pulled back and forth because he and his promises are faithful, the verse says. You, you may remember in last week's New Year's message that we talked about how we can persevere in our faith because of Jesus's faithfulness in the past, that he gave his life for us, means that we can trust Jesus's promises for the future, even as we face trials and obstacles in our present. So his faithfulness in the past helps us to trust God in the future, even in the midst of trials in our present. Third thing, verse 24, let us consider one another. That's the actual word order. It's, in a lot of translations, it says, let us consider how to stir one another up or spur one another on towards love and good deeds. But the actual word order in the original language is, let us consider one another first. In other words, that we would give attention to each other, that you and I give attention to each other in our trials, in our weaknesses, in our struggles, so that as we listen to each other, as we care for each other, as we pay attention to each other, that we can stir each other towards love and good works, it says in the rest of that verse. 
that we are to experience and receive the love and grace of Jesus from one another, that we share with each other and serve each other with the love of Christ. So the point of this whole section is that when we talk about, well, you know, yes, I'm supposed to draw near to God uh, because of what Jesus has done. But what about when my sin is an obstacle? Or what about when I'm, you know, kind of distant and despairing and doubting God because of my suffering? And what this passage tells us is that through the blood of Jesus, we can draw near to God, we can persevere in our struggles, and we can adhere to one another for encouragement that we give and receive in the body of Christ. I know that's cheesy, that, that rhyming, draw near, persevere, and adhere, but it's going to help you remember those three things, right? But the question, of course, is then how do we get to that place when I'm feeling overwhelmed? by my sin or my suffering or my situation. Now, did you notice the common theme in those three things that we can experience in Christ? In our English translation, it says, let us draw near, let us hold fast, let us consider one another. In the original language, that's the first person plural permissive. So what it means is let us together draw near to God. Let us together persevere in our suffering and in our faith. Let us together give attention to one another. In other words, this is not something that we experience or that happens alone. Well, how do we know that? That it's not just the author kind of using a, a generic plural, like we should do this, we should do that. Verse 25 is the key here. It says that by not neglecting meeting together, as some people have fallen into the habit of doing, that's how we experience it these things. Is that you, as we experience isolation and maybe sheltering in place has drained you, as personal challenges in your life have chipped away at you, have you come to a point where even when you're actually free and available, I, we understand like for some people you cannot uh, participate in Sunday worship on, on, online at, at the same time as us because of life circumstances, but those moments when we're free and available, it's easy to treat Sunday worship like it's an optional TV show that we tune into at, at our convenience uh, online instead of treating it as a sacred gathering of believers worshiping God together. Or for some of us, we drop out of our small groups because we have Zoom burnout. I don't feel like sharing my story or my struggles with other people. I don't want to receive grace and truth from others. And I rob others of the grace and truth that Jesus means for them to experience through me, that they need from me. And so the Bible tells us instead that we are to continue meeting together. And as we do, it encourages one another with both gentle comfort, sometimes with sharp exhortation and accountability. And that when we do that, it gives us hope. It keeps us focused on hope, especially as we keep our eyes on the clock that is ticking down to the day of Jesus's return, the ultimate fulfillment of our hope and what we're really looking for in life. <coughs> Excuse me. So let's put some skin on it. I know this is very theoretical for you at this moment. These past few weeks, I have to confess that I felt exhausted by preparations for the Christmas worship service and the New Year's worship service. And as the toll of those things uh, were accompanied by the barrage of just bad news, like um, my son 
Chile was exposed to um, somebody who was COVID positive in, in his daycare. So we were quarantined for two weeks and, and fearful for, for the health of our children. And of course, with the passing of our, our brother and friend, uh, Albert Yi, and just an ongoing barrage of bad news. And so because of all these things, I was already tired. I got so busy that I skipped a Christmas day call that I intended to a man who's been a spiritual mentor in my life and in some ways a spiritual father uh, for many years. Uh, someone who's been there for me, I was there to perform my wedding and perform my ordination uh, as a pastor. And uh, at times is the only man that I can talk to when, when I'm feeling uh, overwhelmed by the weight of life or ministry, uh, when it feels too heavy. And so a few days after Christmas, I, I remember to text um, th this person and I just that, you know, I finally had a quiet moment to reflect and I'm thinking about you and, and praying for you. And so I was surprised uh, when I heard back from his wife, Josh, um, he suffered a severe stroke yesterday and he's in the ICU and could use your prayer for him. And the weight of it just hit me. I am a day too late because I waited. I, um, and all I could get out in my prayer was help, Lord. I'm not ready to let go of him. And I think the culmination of all these things, that felt like the last straw. I felt like an empty box that was being folded in and crushed, over, folding in on itself over and over again until there was nothing left. And so I have to confess to you that I started struggling over the past week with being able to engage with my wife or with family or with friends. A lot of my ugly and angry and sinful tendencies started to bubble up to the surface. My energy and motivation dropped to about zero. I felt distracted, distant from God. And then the Holy Spirit pierced the cloud of that, that cloud that was hanging over my mind. You know, Josh, you're not just tired. This is more than just burnout. I think you're a little bit depressed. And so I was feeling awful and sinful. So what should I do? And as, we're, as I was studying this passage, I want you to pay attention to the order of things that were told in this passage is important. So the first thing, it's like in the shower in the morning, I try to draw close to Jesus and I started praying, Lord, I'm a wreck. And my, I'm sinning against people that I love very dearly. But because of the blood of Jesus sacrificed for me, I thank you, Jesus, that you cleanse me, that you forgive me, that you accept me, that you love me. I texted a friend, you know, I'm going through a hard time and I re recognize I can't do this alone. Uh, would you choose just pray for my closeness with God throughout the day? So we draw near to God. First thing, when you're going through times that you're overwhelmed. Next, instead of focusing the blame on the circumstances or making excuses for my sin or running away from the pain, I, we try to hang on to Jesus. That the only thing that's going to give me strength and hope to be able to persevere, to get out of bed, to attend meetings, to be present with my family, to finish writing a sermon, is if I hold fast to those truths about Jesus and from Jesus that because of his blood, because of his love, that I am forgiven, I'm accepted, that I'm not just my work or my performance, but I'm loved in Christ and I'm filled up with Christ. Then third thing that, that Jesus promises is that 
as we turn to other people. So I turn to my small group, pour out, here's my sin and my troubles. I receive encouragement and grace and truth and prayer from uh, these precious brothers in Christ. And I found myself feeling emboldened and empowered to initiate with people that I've hurt, to love and serve other people. And instead of out of my emptiness, out of the fullness of having the grace and love and truth of Christ poured into my life and into my heart and being able to participate in giving that same gift back to those brothers in Christ as well. We can draw near to God because he's given us this body of believers to encourage us, to help us to remember first thing as we get up, to draw near to Jesus because of all that he's done to us, for us through Jesus. And then to get out of bed, to persevere, to hang by hanging on to those truths about Jesus, have people surrounding us and reminding us of those truths about Jesus. And then lastly, to actually be in community with others as you pour out your heart and your life, your sins and your struggles, that there's an interaction, a transaction of grace and love and truth that fills us up and helps us to hold on to the hope that we know is true in Jesus and to experience and taste that for ourselves. May you be encouraged, especially as you keep your eyes on the day that is approaching of Christ's return, the ultimate fulfillment of our hope and salvation. <clears throat> and yet, for some, the coming of that day of Jesus' return is not good news for us. Verse 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. <coughs> Excuse me. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. That's the old covenant. Then how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said in the word of God, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those who were so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your own property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous ones shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So in verse 26, it issues a terrifying warning. If we drift from God, instead of drawing near to God, that 
That's not just something that happens to us. It's a willful choice. Verse 26 says it is deliberate sin. So verses 26 to 31, if you've heard the good news about Jesus, that the high priest has exchanged our sinfulness for his righteousness through this once for all sacrifice. And if we hear that and willfully continue to sin, we turn from his grace and his truth. There is no other sacrifice that can save us. Only the fearful expectation of judgment, what the Bible calls hell. That if we continue to say no to Jesus, eventually he says, okay. Because sin causes separation from God. And we're rejecting the son of God's once for all sacrifice and salvation. Then what we receive in its place is a once for all separation from God. And it's torment uh, described like a fire because you cannot turn away from God, the source of life and goodness, of joy and love, and still experience those things. That's why eternal separation from Jesus is hell. And your life, it may be terrible right now, temporarily, but it is not hell. Hell is by far worse. Instead, he implores us in verses 32 to 34, remember your past, that there were times when you didn't run from your suffering, that you didn't run away from Jesus. Instead, you endured those difficult times for Jesus and with Jesus and how Jesus in the midst of those difficult challenges made you both joyful and generous, no matter what you lost, no matter what it cost, because of the, the things of this world are not your treasure, Jesus is. And that in him, we have a far greater inheritance that lasts forever. Those are the promises. And so in verses 35 through 36, Jesus got us through trouble in the past. Therefore, he's going to get you through these troubles now. So don't toss out your confidence in him. We need it to endure, to receive strength from Jesus, to trust and obey the will of God, just like Jesus did in these difficult seasons, because ultimately it'll be worth it in the end when we receive, when we receive our inheritance, our fulfillment in the promises of Jesus. You understand? So the point of this section, this warning and this reminder about the past of when we have endured suffering is the whole point here is that when suffering comes, how you respond, particularly to Jesus in the midst of your suffering, matters, that there is no middle ground or neutral response. Either you deliberately decide, I'm not going to turn to Jesus. I'm going to turn away from him because I'm hurt, because I'm angry, because I don't believe he's good and that he's God. And that we sin by so doing. We're spitting on, we're profaning his blood that's been spilled on our behalf, this passage says. And so we respond by drawing away from God in our suffering instead of drawing near to him. Or you decide, no matter what I've lost, no matter what it costs, that I trust him. I, my hope is in him. I know that his great promises to come are better in Jesus, that I can endure this with tears and with joy and with hope, not because I'm so strong, but because we have this great high priest who is much stronger than I. And so I hang on to Jesus as an anchor of hope for my soul. 
and verse 37 through 39 wraps up this entire passage with an encouragement from scripture, quoting Habakkuk chapter two, verses three to four, that your suffering and sorrow are just for a little while, but that faithful ones put their hope in the coming one who's coming in a little while, while others shrink back from the Messiah, they turn back from the Messiah, so he turns his back on them as well. So, when troubles come into your life, are you drawing close to Jesus or are you shrinking back from him? Are you responding to your sorrows and sufferings by enduring difficulties with Jesus and for Jesus? Or do you trample on the gift and the shedding of his blood on your behalf? How you respond to suffering reflects what you really believe about the final outcome of your life here and in eternity. So how long can you and I endure crisis in our lives? How long, if you're going through seasons of suffering or difficulty, can you endure things like this? Well, let me put it to you this way. If you've ever get stranded in the wilderness, if you ever get caught in a burning building, or if you ever find your your scuba tank running out of oxygen, I want you to remember a few survival rules that I learned courtesy of National Geographic, right? Let me read them to you. People can survive just two to three minutes without air, but with training, it's possible to hold your breath for up to 11 minutes. People can survive, this one surprised me, for just 10 minutes in 300 degree Fahrenheit heat, I didn't know that people could survive in that, but you can survive in that for about 10 minutes or adults can at least. Children can only survive a few minutes in about 120 degree heat. People can endure barely 30 minutes of being exposed to 40 degree water, that freezing cold water. People can endure for up to seven days without water, without drinking water. And people can endure for about 45 days without food. But the Bible tells us that people were not meant to endure suffering in this life or the next. But praise be to God that we have this great high priest that by Jesus once and for all sacrifice that you and I can draw near to God simply by placing our trust in him. That you and I can endure hardship by turning to him, by trusting him, by drawing near to Jesus, that he provides his family to meet with us, to pray for us, to encourage us, to spur us, to live out Christ and to pour grace and truth, the truth of Jesus into our hearts and out from our hands. That whatever trials and tribulations you face today, my hope and my prayer for you is that you would respond in light of a great high priest who is faithful as your once for all permanent eternal sacrifice yesterday, and that he will be faithful to you as your savior, as your promise today and forever. And you draw near to him with humility, with trust, with hope. Heavenly Father, the reality of our lives and our world is that we're surrounded by circumstances. Some are joyful, some are painful. And that all of us 
live under the cloud of sin that wants to separate us and keep us apart from you. But we praise you this morning that you are not just pie in the sky hope, but you are a firm and secure foundation and anchor of hope for our souls. And so we ask this morning that you would encourage us that no matter what kind of sin has grabbed a hold of us, no matter what kind of suffering is kicking us down, that you have parted the impartable Red Sea, Jordan River, of that curtain that separates us, Lord. And we no longer have to live distant from you, no matter how filthy we are, no matter how in pain we are, that there's a God in heaven who cares about us. You have opened the prison door. Would you give us courage to walk through? May we draw near to you this morning. May we find that through the love and support of your family, as we experience your truth and your grace and your love through one another, that it helps us and encourages us to draw near to you, that it gives us perseverance to hold on to you, that no matter how difficult our lives or our circumstances, that we can stir each other up towards love and good deeds of a life in Christ. May we respond to those moments of difficulty, those seasons of suffering well. Would you use the body of Christ to encourage us? May your Holy Spirit empower us that we would choose to draw near to Jesus instead of drawing away from him. Amen.